I know we have a number of current and former uh, military members in our congregation this morning. And uh, I have to admit, at the, the risk of offending our brothers and sisters from other military branches, I like the motto of the Marine Corps the best. Sorry, airmen. Sorry, airwomen. Sorry, Army, Navy, Coast Guard. I like the, the motto of the Marine Corps the best. Semper Fidelis. Semper Fi, for short. The official website of the Marine Corps says this about Semper Fi. Latin for always faithful, Semper Fidelis is the motto of every Marine. An eternal and collective commitment to the success of our battles, the progress of our nation, and the steadfast loyalty to the fellow Marines we fight alongside. But if you Marines are honest, while Semper Fidelis is a noble aspiration for service, it is not the perfect reality of every Marine who's ever served. Every Marine, no matter how sincere or committed he or she is, falls short of perfect faithfulness. And I, and I say that not to take a pot shot at the Marines. Every Marine I've ever, I've ever met, truly, is driven to live up to the Semper Fi standard. But it's simply an observation to say that even the most faithful are not 100% faithful. Friends, you and I know this from our own lives and our own experience. We make promises, don't we? And we break them. We, we want people to rely on us, but we prove ourselves unreliable. Friends, there's only one. There's only one for whom Semper Fidelis is not just an aspiration, but a perfect reality, and that is our triune God. He is always faithful. He is always faithful to his word and to his promises, to his character, and therefore to us as his people. But friends, what about the times when God doesn't seem faithful? What about the times in our lives when our experience, what we're going through, doesn't seem to match God's promises and even his character that he's revealed in God's word? What, what about the times when it feels like God's word has just kind of fallen short? What do we do then? What do you do then? Friends, this scenario I've just described is the case in our scripture text today, Psalm 89. So please turn there with me. Psalm 89, it's on page 496 of the Bible underneath your seats. Friends, today we continue our eight-sermon journey through the Psalms with Psalm 89, the last psalm in book three of the Psalter. Friends, whereas books one and two of the Psalms are filled with uh, songs by King David about his reign and sufferings, book three makes it seem like we've moved to a different stage in salvation history. Only one psalm in book three is by David. And the majority of the Psalms of Book 3 seem to reflect on Israel's exile from the land, which of course happened some 500 years after David's reign. Book 3 is filled with a foreboding darkness, an unrelenting darkness that seems to have enveloped God's people. It really culminates in Psalms 88 and 89 at the end of the book. Psalm 88, friends, is the only psalm where the darkness is unrelenting. In every other psalm in the Psalter, the cries of lament and anguish from God's people eventually pivot to praise, but not Psalm 88. It literally ends with the word darkness. And so when Psalm 89 begins, it's really like a shaft of light penetrates the darkness, isn't it? I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. But as we'll see, this early voice of praise indeed pivots to the wail of lament, in verse 38, Israel's current experience doesn't match the content of God's promises. Now, before we read, uh, and we're going to go through this, this passage progressively this morning, a couple more quick notes. You'll notice that the title of the psalm at the top says, A Maskeel of Ethan the Ezraite. I'm sure you're wondering, now, what's a maskeel, <laughs> number one, and who is this guy, Ethan the Ezraite? Well, unfortunately, we don't know for sure. Uh, maskeel is a form of a Hebrew word for wisdom or skill, so it, so it seems most likely this psalm is called a maskeel because either, either because it conveys wisdom or because it's a wisely, a skillfully composed psalm. It's beautifully written. Ultimately, we're not sure. Ethan the Ezraite is, is mentioned in 1 Kings 4 and 1 Chronicles 15 as a contemporary of King David or, and King Solomon. Uh, what we know about Ethan is, is that he was known for his wisdom and that he was one of three lead musicians or choir directors in the temple alongside Asaph and Haman. 
who wrote, I think, Psalm 88 or 87. Yeah. Uh, one of those at the end. Yeah, yeah, 88. That's, that's right. Sorry about that. Um, so Ethan's one of the lead musicians in the psalm. So it's possible that, that this song was written during the reign of King David at the end of his reign or during the reign of King Solomon or maybe even during the, the reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam if, if Ethan lived that long. Uh, a time, sometime when the king of Israel was suffering, when Israel was, was uh, suffering at the hands of their enemies. However, when we get to the end of Psalm 89, as you're going to see here in just a little bit, I think you'll find that the language of the Psalms seems to indicate more than just kind of baseline oppression. It talks about the city being in ruins and the crown being defiled and cast to the ground. I mean, it was a situation so bad that the psalmist said that God had rejected his anointed king. It sounds a lot like, frankly, the situation at the time of the exile in 586 B.C. when Babylon overran Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, they deposed the puppet king they had installed on the throne, and they led the people away in chains. It's an exile that lasted for 70 years. For whatever reason, though, the Babylonians left some of the people in Jerusalem to live among the rubble. And so I think it's possible, it's possible, maybe even probable, that among the people still in Jerusalem during the exile were the musicians from Ethan's choir, his temple music guild, if you will. And the person who wrote Psalm 89 is kind of a musical descendant of Ethan the Ezraite, writing his reflection on this dark time of God's people when it seemed like all hope was lost. Friends, instead of reading the entire psalm up front, as is our normal pattern with the text of the sermon, I'm going to read it in chunks today, in sections, uh, given its length. And so before we get into it, and before we get into the psalm, let me help you understand how this psalm is put together. I think you'll understand this long psalm better that way. Uh, the easiest way to, to understand Psalm 89 is to see it in two big parts, okay? Verses 1 to 37 and verses 38 to 52, in the first 37 verses, the psalmist with a full heart and full throat exults in God's faithful forever love as displayed in his covenant with David. But then the psalm turns on a dime in verse 38. The contrast is so abrupt that you'd almost think it was like two separate songs kind of fused together. Starting in verse 38, the psalmist laments that instead of the king reigning in Jerusalem in fulfillment of the covenant... Jerusalem is in ruins. The, the crown is cast down. David's throne is empty. There's this huge gap. There's this huge chasm between God's promises and Israel's experience. And, and so what we realize in, in, in the last half of the psalm, that this isn't so much a royal hymn of praise as it is a community lament at what appear to be the failure of God's promises. But zooming in further, we see that this psalm has a more detailed design. And that, that shape is reflected in the sermon notes in your bulletin. Uh, often the biblical authors, friends, would write their poetry in what's called a chiasm, where, where different sections of the poem mirror each other in some way. So clearly that's the case here in Psalm 89. The psalmist begins, you can look at the, the shape of what I've laid out there in the bulletin. The psalmist begins by singing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. But then at the end, in verse 49, kind of the bookend, instead of praising that love, he ends by asking the question, where is it? Where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you, you swore to David? And then in the Psalms design, the second and fourth sections also mirror each other in certain ways, which then kind of sets apart the section in the middle. You see that? It sets it apart as central. It's kind of like A, B, C, B, A in its structure. And in this case, the C section is the focal point of the psalm, right? In establishing God's covenant with King David. That's kind of like the beating heart of Psalm 89 is the covenant with David. So I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord, kind of section A, praising the incomparable God, section B, the Davidic covenant, section C, the incomparable God rejecting his anointed, section B1 or B2, whatever you want to call it. And then where is God's faithful love back to the A? Here's the main idea. Here's the main idea, okay? Sing of God's faithful love when his promises seem to fail. Despite what you can see, they haven't and they won't. Friends, sing of God's faithful love even when his promises seem to fail. 
Despite what you can see in your, with your eyes and in your experience, they haven't. And they indeed cannot. They will not. Friends, what I'm going to do this morning, we're just going to work through each section of text that you see there in your bulletin. We're going to do it pretty quickly. Fair warning. Uh, this, this sermon may feel a tad explanation heavy uh, at the front throughout the first few minutes. and Because I'm, I'm just going to try to work through the text first before making application to us. Okay, I'm going to kind of backload the application at the end. I'll give several ways that I think we should apply Psalm 89. I will sing of God's faithful love to David. Let's read verses 1 to 4. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. In verse 1, friends, the psalmist clearly begins on a note of joy. I mean, we've seen it. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. I'm making known with my mouth his faithfulness to all generations. Friend, this steadfast love of which the psalmist sings is his, his loyal love, God's enduring love, his mercy that's bound up by promise to his people. Friends, all throughout the scriptures, uh, God's steadfast love is paired with his faithfulness. The one adds color and dimension to the other. These attributes of God form the basis of his relationship with his people. Friends, perhaps you remember when, when God gave Moses his law and stone tablets, not the first time, but the second time, after Israel's idolatry and rebellion, after Moses interceded for the people to avert God's wrath. Exodus 34 says that God passed before Moses proclaiming his name. Remember that? And he proclaimed this, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the shorthand language of the covenant love of God. From the beginning, these words have been associated with God's gracious covenant love for his people. So again, steadfast love and faithfulness are again are like this, this promise shorthand, this promise-keeping, salvation-bringing shorthand for God's love for his people. Despite their sin, despite their wandering, despite their lack of enduring love or faithfulness, God's steadfast love and faithfulness remain. They are forever. They don't have an expiration date. They're effective and available to us just like they were to the people in exile. In fact, as we keep reading the psalm throughout the sermon, just notice how many times the following words or the following themes are repeated in Psalm 89. Forever. Forever occurs eight times. Faithfulness. Faithfulness occurs seven times. Covenant. Covenant occurs three times. Clearly, this psalm revolves around the forever faithful love of our God. Why is the psalmist so energized to sing of God's love? Well, verses 2 to 4 say that it's because he's reflecting in especially, especially upon God's special love for David and his house. Look at verse 2. For, here's the reason. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you'll establish your faithfulness. I have made, you have said, God, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now, friends, surely if you've been with us for the last few weeks in this psalm series, surely you recognize by now this is the language of Psalm, excuse me, 2 Samuel 7 and God's covenant with David. It's kind of like a broken record in the Psalms, isn't it? As we've, we've seen again and again how this theme weaves its way through the Psalms. In 2 Samuel 7, after King David was at peace with the, the warring kind of neighborhood kingdoms, David had, an, had the idea, he said, I want to build a, a, a temple for God in Jerusalem. And David said, here I am, God. Here I am living in a place of cedar while the Ark of, of the Covenant remains in a tent. David said, let me build a house for you. But that night, the Lord spoke to Nathan the prophet who gave David an oracle, a word from the Lord. God said that instead of David building a house for God, God would build an enduring house, a dynasty for David. And that from this dynasty would arise a king who would have an eternal reign, an eternal dominion. 
It's this reality, friend, that fueled the hopes of God's people. They understood that God's intention was to rescue the world from the king from David's line. Notice in verse 3, the psalmist calls God's promise to David a covenant. But guess what? Nowhere in 2 Samuel 7 does the word covenant appear. Now, we know that the Lord cut a covenant with Noah after the flood. He did it again with Abraham when he promised global salvation for the nations through Abraham's coming offspring. The same with, with Moses and Israel at Sinai. God cut a covenant. But here, the psalmist uses that same language of covenant to describe God's dealings with David, even though covenant was not used in 2 Samuel 7. So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal here is that the psalmist interprets 2 Samuel 7 for us. Psalm 89 is kind of like a biblical commentary on 2 Samuel 7. Clearly, we are un to understand God's promise to David, friends, in the, in the exact same way we understand, we understand God's promise to Abraham. It's a covenant. And why is that such massive news for us? Well, clearly, God promised Abraham that the world's only hope of salvation would come from his future descendant. He would bring blessing to the nations. And so by calling this promise to David a covenant, the psalmist is showing us that the king from David's line is picking up the mantle of the salvation bringer, right? He would be the one now who carries the promise of Abraham on. The nations of the world would be blessed by this future king who would defeat every enemy and, and restore the world back to the way it was supposed to be at the beginning. He would bring God's salvation. Well, surely, friends, this is a message worth singing about throughout all generations, as the psalmist says. Despite our profound sin, despite our rebellion against God, our God is merciful. He established his covenant with David, and he promised to send a king to save us. Our sins, they are many. His mercy, and even his mercies, are more. Friends, in verse 5, the psalmist transitions from singing about God's steadfast love and faithfulness to calling the heavens themselves as a witness to praise this incomparable God that is mighty to save. Let's read starting in verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its, when its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab or Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and her and Hermon, rejoicingly praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High is your, your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed, blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted." Friends, in these verses, verses 5 to 16, the psalmist praises the incomparable God, mighty to save. What do you think the wonders are in verse 5 that deserve such praise? Well, they're further defined in the second half of the verse, aren't they? The wonders are related to God's faithfulness. God deserves unceasing worship for the forever faithful love that he promised to David that we talked about in verses 1 to 4. And who is it that's doing the praising according to verse 5? It's the very heavens. But this isn't like Psalm 19 where the heavens refer to the sun, moon, and stars. In this case, God deserves to be worshipped by the ones who dwell in the heavens in God's domain. It's the assembly of his holy ones according to the end of verse 5. It's the congregation of the heavenly angelic realm. They're now being summoned to worship the Lord just as God's congregation is summoned to worship him here on the earth. Ironically, the angels, friends, are called to praise the Lord for the things that we so often question, his faithfulness. It's a bit of an implicit rebuke here, isn't it? If we saw God like the angels do, uh, we'd not once call into question his love and his faithfulness for his people. 
In verses 6 to 8, the psalmist riffs on how incomparable the Lord is. For who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? Friends, so awesome is our God that even the mightiest angel in the heavenly host trembles before the Lord God. Friends, our God is not your neighborhood Santa in the sky. He's not the big man upstairs. He is the incomparable, awesome one, the creator of the heaven and earth, who rules the heavens in majesty and whose glory outshines the sun. In verse 9, the psalmist transitioned to God's, from God's rule over the heavens to his rule over the earth. He displays his power through his mighty acts of salvation for his people. Look at verse 9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Friends, Lindsay and I took a, a trip to Cabo for our 10th wedding anniversary back in the fall. And just we were stunned by just the sheer size and strength of the, of the waves that repeatedly just crashed into the, the rocks near our resort. The, the ocean is just incomparably powerful, isn't it? In, in the ancient world, the, the mighty ocean symbolized the chaos and the darkness of evil. But friends, we can rejoice because the heaving ocean cannot overpower our God. All the weight and fury of the seas is not too much for him. After all, he both created the seas and sustains them by his powerful word. Friends, no wonder Jesus' disciples stood in wonder and awe after he hushed the raging wind and seas with his mere word. Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? He's the mighty God of Psalm 89. It may not be immediately apparent, but the psalmist continues this idea of God's sovereignty over the waters in verse 10. And I remember each time I read this verse growing up as a, as a teenager or whatever, I was always confused by why Rahab needed to be crushed, right? <laughs> Didn't she help save the spies of Israel who Joshua sent, you know, to, to Jericho? Well, it turns out this is a much different Rahab, actually. Rahab in the ancient mythologies was the dragon-like sea monster who ruled the depths of the oceans. And so the biblical authors in the Old Testament used this idea of this, of this ancient enemy under the waters to picture God's enemies, and especially Egypt. Listen to Isaiah 51, 9. Isaiah 51, 9, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for your redeemed to pass over? So friends, using Isaiah 51, 9, do you see what the psalmist is saying? When did the Lord crush Rahab, the great dragon, like a carcass? It was in the Exodus, right? It was in the Exodus of his people from Egypt when he led them through the Red Sea and when he parted the sea for their crossing and then hurled the waters back at the Egyptian army and crushed them like a carcass. Friends, in delivering his people from their enemies, it was like God crushed the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15 style. It's one reason that the Exodus is to the Old Testament what the cross is to the new. It's like a sneak preview of God's ultimate salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is what the psalmist remembers and praises God for. In verses 10 to 12, the psalmist continues the theme of God's sovereignty and authority on earth. All his creation belongs to him from pole to pole, as it were, from north to south. Even the mountains like Tabor and, and Hermon in northern Israel joyously praise the name of this incomparable God. The majesty of the mountains points to the majesty of their creator. What's the point of all this? What's the point? Friends, the point is that God is mighty to save his people. Friends, the fact that God has made his promises, listen to this, the fact that God has made promises to save and redeem, that is only comforting if God is powerful enough to accomplish what he purposed to do. His promises only comfort if God is powerful to carry them out. The psalmist is showing us the promise maker is the Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 13 summarizes the point, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. God has the power to be faithful, but does he want to be? Is God willing to love his people so faithfully as this? Well, verse 14 assures us the answer is yes. As one commentator put it, God's might is always right. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. 
Well, friends, the very foundation of God's rule is his moral character, his uprightness, and his determination to bring about what is fair. The, the judge of all the earth will always do what is right. And then there's steadfast love and faithfulness again. The psalmist pictures them this time kind of emanating from God's very person. They go before him so that God always directs them in front of his face to his people. Oh, beloved, surely this awesome, incomparable, sovereign, conquering, righteous, merciful God is worthy of the praise of the heavens and the earth. But the wonderful grace for us is that when we worship this incomparable God, when we make much of him rather than making much of us, we actually get the joy. What a grace. We worship him and we get the joy. He gets glory. We get satisfaction. Look at verse 15. Blessed, flourishing, happy are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. Friend, you want full joy? You want to have the deepest longing of your soul filled and your craving for true life satisfied? Well, friends, you'll not find it in anything that God has created, as good as those things are. You'll find it not in a person or a thing on this earth, not in your spouse, not in your children, not in a hobby or leisure or physical fitness. The only way to find true eternal joy in life and goodness is in this incomparable God who is mighty to save. Next the psalmist moves on to this, the third section. God established his eternal covenant with David. Let's just read verses 17 to 18 to start off. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Now, let me just stop there briefly. The psalmist is still singing, obviously, about God's goodness to his people. It's kind of hard to see the stanza division right here. But, but you can now see him shifting back to his theme at the beginning. He's returning to God's promises to David. You see that? The horn in verse 17 is a symbol of military strength, just like the, the horn of a ram symbolized his strength in the flock. Okay? Same thing with the shield of verse 18. It's a symbol of protection of Israel. And the last part of verse 18 shows us what we're talking about. Who is it that is primarily the horn and the shield? It's the king who protects his people from enemies all around. And from that mention of the king leading and protecting his people, the psalmist now springboards into a meditation on David and the covenant that God made with him. So let's continue reading verse 19. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. Well, friends, you can read about these events in 1 Samuel 16. God chose David to be Israel's king, not because of his physical prowess like King Saul had, but because God looked at his heart and knew that David was a man who would love and keep God's law, just like Deuteronomy 17 said that the Israel's king should do. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. Verse, excuse me, verse 22. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not Humble him, I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and steadfast love, there it is again, shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. The same thing that God did to Rahab in verse 10, he promises to David's enemies in verse 23. He will crush them. Why? Because according to verse 24, God's faithful, promise-keeping love is with this David. Let's keep reading verse 25. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the, on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. <laughs> Friends, 
Here we have the first indication that, that in this passage, the psalm writer is not just thinking of David, the former king of Israel in history, right? He's thinking of the David to come. He's thinking of the promise made about David's greater son, of this global and eternal rule. The promise of God in verse 25 is nothing short of worldwide dominion. The worldwide dominion given to Adam in the beginning. Remember this from last week in Psalm 72? David prayed in Psalm 72, 8, that his descendant would reign, remember, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, here now in, in Psalm 89, 25, Ethan presents God asserting that he will put this Davidic king's hand on the sea, in his right hand on the rivers, the rivers that go to the ends of the earth, right? That's unlimited power. It's as if the unmitigated power of the Lord that we saw in verses 5 to 16 are now attributed to this king. He has the type of endless sovereignty too. He's put on parallel with God. Verse 26 confirms this idea that this king is the new Adam. In keeping with 2 Samuel 7.14 and Psalm 2.7 that we looked at a few weeks ago, this king will call God his father. He will be an obedient son. Uh, friends, I made a bunch of con connections about this in my first two sermons in the series, Psalms 1 and 2, last week in Psalm 72. So if you're wondering how the father-son language implies that this king will be the new Adam, well, I just encourage you to listen to those sermons again, okay? You can find them on our website. In verse 29, the psalmist reiterates that the heart of the Davidic promise is that one of David's descendants will reign on the throne forever. The new Adam will be king over the world forever and ever. He will be the firstborn. He will be the highest of the kings of the earth. There will be none like him. He will have no rival. Let's read verses 30 to 37. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish uh, their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Join with all nature and manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Friends, up to this point, it has seemed to us like God's covenant with David is, that, is, is, is what we would call an unconditional covenant, okay? That it's not conditioned upon the human partner. It's unilaterally kept by God himself. It's unconditional. I will establish his offspring and throne. I will make him the firstborn. I will crush his foes. My steadfast love and faithfulness will be with him. Well, verses 30 to 32 show us that there is indeed a conditional aspect to God's covenant with David. These verses are a paraphrase of 2 Samuel 7, 14. God promises David about the coming Messiah. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the, rod of the sons of men. In other words, friends, God's promises to David telescope out from him to all the kings in his dynasty. It's a little bit confusing, isn't it, how he can talk about one offspring that will be this eternal king and all of his offspring, the kings who might even receive his discipline. Well, friends, I think it makes sense when we realize that the expectation is that the king would represent God's rule to the people, right? Remember from the Psalm 1 servant, sermon. The, the king was to fill his heart and mind with God's Torah and live it out like Deuteronomy 17 said he should. But if one of David's sons should turn their back on God and, and, and rebel against him, they should expect to receive God's hand of correction. The curses of the covenant, a la Deuteronomy 28, would come home to roost. So what I think this verse implies is that although David's children, the kings in his line, would often forsake God's law, when the offspring, the ultimate king arrives, friends, he would be a fully obedient son. He would be worthy of reigning, not just over God's people, but reigning over the world as the new and better Adam, as the true and better Adam. In other words, 
God will not only install his king on the throne forever, he will install a king that will succeed where Adam and Israel failed. It's an unconditional promise with a conditional aspect. Our salvation depends on an obedient son. Psalm 89, 33-37 remind us, friends, that the faithfulness, the faithlessness, excuse me, of God's people does not mean that God is faithless. Verse 34 could not be more clear. God will not violate his covenant. He will not alter his word. Verse 35 says that this covenant God has, has given, it, it is an oath. He has sworn by it, just like he did with Abraham. He will not lie to David. He is staking, God has staking his entire name and reputation upon this promise to David. If God's word to David fails, he's not God. He's an imposter. He's a false God. Just pack it in and live for yourself because God would be a liar. And that's what makes the next few verses so hard. This psalm, which has soared in the heavens and praising God's faithfulness, now lies prostrate in the dust. There is a huge experiential gap between what the psalmist has just rehearsed and what the reality is on the ground. It seems as if God is the liar that the psalmist says that he's not. Let's read verses 38 to 45. The incomparable God has rejected his anointed. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Friends, the last king to sit on the throne from David's line was a puppet king under Babylon named Zedekiah. You can read about this in 1 Kings 24 and 25. After 10 years as the puppet king, Zedekiah got tired of Babylon's domination and rebelled. Bad move, okay, bad move. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army besieged Jerusalem for a year. They starved the people, and eventually in 586 B.C., they breached the walls of Jerusalem. They captured King Zedekiah, and as punishment, they killed his sons before his eyes. And then they gouged out his eyes and led the king in chains to Babylon. The army proceeded to ransack the city. The Babylonians destroyed the temple, the place of God's special covenant presence where he is worshiped. The sacrifices were made. And they hauled thousands of God's people from Judah to Babylon into their exile as prisoners. Friends, this is the exact opposite experience of what God's covenant with David promised. The exact opposite. David's throne was empty. The sightless son of David sat in a dungeon in Babylon. The temple lie in ruins. God's glory long before having departed. God's people were exiled outside the land of promise. No wonder the psalmist was in anguish. And he knew that God had orchestrated it all. Did you notice the common word in nearly every single verse in verses 38 to 45? You. You, you, you. The psalmist is theologically informed. He knows God promised to discipline kings that turned away from him, but I don't know that he ever imagined this. The hope that soared in verses 1 to 37 is all but lost. It seems as if God's promise is buried under the rubble of Jerusalem. And so the psalmist cries out for relief. Look at verse 46. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? He's essentially asking God to be faithful to his promise once again. Lord, you've promised one thing. We're experiencing another. 
How long will your wrath burn? When will you answer us? When will you come? In verses 47 to 48, Ethan essentially asks the Lord to fulfill his promises while he's still living. He wants to see God's steadfast, faithful love to David before he dies. And now he comes to the last section in verses 49 to 51. Where is God's faithful love to David? Again, this kind of reverse echo of the first part of the psalm. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? By, which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked how, and how I bear in my heart the insults of, of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Friends, at the beginning, the psalmist sang of the steadfast love of the Lord, of his faithfulness to David. Now he asks where it is. He pleads with God to see how his people are being mocked, how the nations are insulting his name. Friends, I do not think that in this section of lament, Ethan, the psalmist, is rebelling against God. I don't think he's indicting God's character. Even verse 39 has to be read in light of verses 33 to 35. He's saying, it may seem like God has renounced his covenant, but I know that God can't lie. So I'm going to sing this lament with the eyes of faith. I'm going to ask God hard questions. I'm going to pour out my soul and ask how long. But beneath these questions is the hope that God will indeed relent. He will reveal himself and he will put an end to the destruction. That's the psalm. Now how do we apply it? Number one, first application. Friends, the way to kind of Get Psalm 89 in our heart and in our voice is to look back with joy at God's faithfulness in Christ. I'm going to start with the obvious, right? I haven't talked about Jesus Christ fulfilling God's promises to David yet because I wanted you to feel the tension of Psalm 89. I wanted to, you to kind of feel in your gut, in your bones, the discrepancy between verses 1 to 37 and verses 38 to 51. Well, here is the wonderful reality of living as the New Testament people of God. We know, friends, the answer to Ethan's question, his question, how long, O Lord? It's essentially, when are you going to install your king on the throne like you promised you would, Lord? When will the Messiah King come up and take up his kingdom and reign forever? Oh, friends, you'll find the answer to this question flowing like a Niagara torrent of steadfast love and faithfulness in the new covenant. Finally, God sent his obedient son to reign. He was the son of David. He was the son of Abraham. Remember how outside the hills of Bethlehem, that city of the great King David, when, when the, the Virgin Mary gave birth to her son Jesus, the angels that praised God, praised Yahweh in the heavens, split the darkness with the light of God's glory. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with those with whom he is pleased. The king had arrived, the baby boy who had come to reign. Friend, this Messiah succeeded where Adam and Israel and you and me failed. He was the perfect son of God and son of man. And yet in an indescribable love, friends, he wound up bearing the stripes of Psalm 89:32. But they were not for his own transgressions as king but for the transgressions of the king's people. On the cross, Jesus was exiled outside the gates. He was abandoned and forsaken for you and me. The wrath of God that burned against his people in the exile now burned in justice against King Jesus so that he could relent in mercy toward us. Jesus died for our sins, to bear our curse, to pay our debt to God. And he set us free. On the third day he rose. God vindicated the king's sufferings and all Jesus' foes like crushed beneath his feet. He is the conquering triumphant king of Psalm 89. As Romans 1 says, he is declared the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, this king is your only hope. He is the world's only hope. 
So bow your knee to him this morning. Bow your heart to this king. Give him your, rele- your allegiance and your reliance to do for you what you could not do in a million years. That's pay off your own sins. Simply trust that the king, King Jesus, has paid it all. But for us Christians, we need to rejoice and sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. These mercies that never cease. We need to sing of God's steadfast love and faithfulness in the good times and in the bad. In times of plenty and in times of need. Friends, the barometer of God's faithfulness is not whether you get what you want in this life. The barometer of God's love and faithfulness is a hill outside Calvary. It's the old rugged cross where Jesus proved God's steadfast love to David that those great promises came true. Friends, even though now our experience is in this, it's, it's this strange and often hard tension between God's already fulfilled but not yet completed promises. We live in that tension between the already and the not yet. But friends, we can trust God for the not yet because of the already. Do you realize that? What an advantage we have as New Testament believers. We can trust God for the not yet because of the already. We can look forward in confident hope at the second coming because we can look back in thankful joy at Christ's first coming and all that he accomplished during it. Look back in joy at God's fulfillment in Christ. Number two. Number two, before enduring suffering, stake your life on the promises and character of God. Not just during suffering, before enduring suffering, stake your life on the character and promises of God. Friends, the psalmist here sets for us a wonderful model. The only way that he could pray with the eyes of faith during his suffering is because he had staked his life on God's character and promises before it. Friends, when suffering comes into your life, whether it's already there or whether it's coming down the road, because those are really the only two options. What's going to hold you? When your heart is heavy, when it, when it seems like God has just disappeared, when the tides of sorrows rise all around you, what will be your ballast? Where will you turn? When your loved one passes, when your job craters, when your children rebel, when your marriage limps along, will you stake your life on your own reason and understanding? Will you fall back on your own intuition? Or worse, will you indict God for not knowing as well as you know? Oh, friends, the only way we can suffer with hope is if beforehand, beforehand, Before it comes, we stake our lives on who God is and what he has promised in his word. In other words, we become people of the book. We tailor our thoughts and worldview and responses to the word of God and the God of the word. Friends, for those of you struggling with trials so seemingly random that you wonder how could God be in that randomness, just take a look at Psalm 89. The psalmist knew that God was involved in Israel's calamity. Remember the repeated use of verses 38 to 45. You say, what a moral monster. No, friend. The Bible reveals that God ordains all things. And, this, and that his purposes that he ordains are always good and they are always just and that they are always right. He gives and he takes away. He gives life He takes life. He sets up kings. He takes them down. And it's his right to do that. Friends, if God is not sovereign over the disasters in this life, then life really is a meaningless and purposeless event. And therefore, by definition, there cannot be a meaningful solution to suffering. And by the way, that means the good and enjoyable things that we have have no meaning either because they're also random. You just live and die knowing that life meant nothing. It had no purpose. On the other hand, if God is behind everything that happens, then although we may not understand what God is doing, we can know that there's a purpose somewhere 
and that a solution to the problem will be found. If not in this life, then in the next, we can trust that he is working all things together for our eternal good. We know that he is faithful. Number three, remember that prolonged suffering is an issue of God's timing, not a flaw in his character or promise. Friends, prolonged suffering, this gap between what God has promised and what we're experiencing, it's an issue of God's timing, not a flaw in his character or promise. Here's what the good news of God's faithfulness and sovereignty means. Friends, when there seems to be a yawning chasm between God's promises and your reality, you just know that the, promise, or the, the problem excuse me, is not with God. It's either with you and your limited understanding or it's just a matter of God's timing. Friends, think about Christ's first coming. God sent Jesus somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 years after he first promised salvation to Adam and Eve. It was 1,000 years after his covenant with King David. God is playing the long game. There may be times when it seems like he is just losing his grasp on history. Don't you know what's happening down here, Lord? <laughs> right? Don't you see there seems like an economic recession's coming? Don't you? Wh where are you? There may be be seasons where it seems like the enemy has the upper hand over Christ's church. But friends, our God will triumph. Satan may appear to win a skirmish or two, but our God wins the war in the end. So don't despair. Don't despair when the news headlines terrify you. Don't think that God is slow to fulfill his promise to make all things new. Just turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 3. Peter addresses this very issue of the perceived slowness of Jesus' second coming. To use Psalm 89 language, Christ's return is as sure as the sun and moon in the skies, which are a faithful witness to God's promises to David. Friends, just as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, and the moon will rise tonight, so the king will rise and triumph in the end. Our God is faithful. But in the meantime, as we suffer, as Christ's church is often persecuted, we can cry out with the saints of Revelation 6 and echo Psalm 89. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Oh, Father, how long? How long do you come back and vindicate your name and right the wrongs? Our friends, this is not the cry of unbelief. On the contrary, it is the cry of faith. For it is to God, and it is looking for an answer that you know only God can give. Look at verse 52, and would you respond corporately with the so be it at the end. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's try that again. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we need the eyes of faith. We need to rest on your word and yet we thank you that in Christ your promises are sure. We can bank on your word and take your character as it is revealed to us. Oh, Lord, you are the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And one day, King Jesus will split the sky and finish what he began. We look forward to that day, and we cry out with those saints, How long, O Lord, and Lord Jesus, come quickly. Take us home, the feast in the house of Zion. To this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.